Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. That's a quote by Rumi. Rumi is an Eastern mystic philosopher, you could say. Um, overall, all around sage and mystic <laughs> of the Eastern flavor. Uh, but not the Eastern Orthodox Church flavor. <laughs> Which was what we're talking about. Hey guys, this is a Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. Um, and you are joining me in the middle of a series called On Being Church. And this is episode nine. And episode nine is Christendom. And if you haven't listened to any of the prior ones, that's okay. But you might want to go back. What we've been doing is alternating between in the episodes, alternating between um, a more historical focus and a more um, spiritual focus, I guess you could say, or just a more biblical focus. So I'm bouncing back and forth because um, I want to interweave a discussion about what the church should be with what the church has been and how it's developed through the centuries. And so I'm really enjoying going through the history. Today, did I say this? It's uh, Today's episode is called Christendom. And so this is... Um, I think this is really fascinating. Uh, uh, hold on. I'm trying to get to my notes. Here we go. Um, the word Christendom historically refers to the Christian world. It's in quotes. I'm reading the definition. Like Christian states are Christ, uh, Christian majority countries, or the countries where Christianity dominates or prevails. So really, Christendom has really refers to what we've been talking about, right? Through the patristic period with, uh, with the Edict of Milan, Constantine making Christianity a national religion for the first time, and then it becoming really melded and meshed with these two different geopolitical powers, the um, Byzantium Empire and the burgeoning European monarchies. So that's, that's taken us through the patristic period. But what we, what we see as Christianity has meshed with these two geopolitical powers is that it's become very powerful. It's, it's gotten embed with the state. It's become an imperial religion. And it's, it's put Christianity on top of the two most powerful nations in the world at the time, first, you know, Constantinople and Byzantium, it was the first premier power. But then as it begins to wane, European monarchies become the next new power, and both are Christian. Now, they had the split. We talked about the schism uh, in episode 7. So there, there, there are differences there, but these are the two most powerful nations at the time in the world, Western world, you could say. Um, and they're both Christian. So Christianity is becoming a state religion. It's enmeshed with these two states. It's, it's inseparable. Kings, emperors view themselves as divinely instigated and they're, you know, they're in charge of Christian nations. That's what Christendom is. It's the idea of Christian nations, Christian countries. You know, it's no longer a people group that's Christian. It's a state. It's a political power. And that's different. That is so different. If we don't understand the difference... We may not understand the difference because we've just grown up in, well, we live in a Christian nation. We, we live in a world where there are Christian nations. But what does it mean to have a Christian nation? What does it mean to have laws founded on Christian principles? But what is Christianity? 
It's not laws. It's not rules. Jesus didn't come and instigate a bunch of rules. He came and gave us the Holy Spirit. This is what we've been talking about when we've talked about the three, the four orthos, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthothenesthema, and orthosiasi, right? And we talked about how orthosiasi was always the central, the leading factor, which leads us to the other three. What you have, of course, during the patristic period is orthodoxy taking center, which is right thinking, which is we got to get our truth right. And then on top of that, you have Christianity getting embedded and enmeshed in political powers. And that leads to Christendom. And that's what we're going to talk about today is, is as Christianity, especially in the European monarchies, really takes hold and really takes over nation states. It changes from a relational, organic kind of gathering of people focused on knowing God to a national national religion with national leaders like popes and the, what was the other guy, the, the, uh, the, in Constantinople it was the, um, it's almost on the tip of my tongue, the patriarch of, Constantinople, I think, was the the Eastern Orthodox Pope. But these guys, the, the popes are not only leading their respective churches, they're leading their respective nations. These guys have a lot of political power, and that's what we're about to see. So we're discussing now a period that is referred to as high, the High Middle Ages. So we've been talking about the period of time in Western culture called the Early Middle Ages. And this is when... Um, you have the center in Byzantium that, that is already kind of just transferred Roman power and all of its pre-ordered, you know, political nature. And so it, it, it's already powerful at, at its founding because it's kind of just transferring what it already was in Italy into Byzantium. But you have the early Middle Ages really is referring more to European monarchies, which are just flourishing. They're just taking root as the as the Western Roman Empire falls, you know, it falls as a result of these barbaric tribes, um, the Franks, Goths, Visigoths, Gauls, you know, these are what become the European monarchies, but they bloom and flourish. And it's that the, the early Middle Ages is called that because it's when these monarchies are just kind of getting formed. But now, and so that has been the patristic period and pre pre patristic. Tongue twister. Now we're in, into the high Middle Ages, and it's called high because it's when the European monarchies really are at their supreme height and power. And then there's the late Middle Ages, um, which is when the European monarchies start to kind of fluctuate, which leads into the modern era. And so there are actually three, also three different periods of Western culture. There is, um, looking for it. Uh, classical antiquity. Classical antiquity is the early, like uh, Greek and Roman, and then um, the medieval period is, you know, what we were talking about. And then there's the modern period, which is which would be from really the Protestant Reformation on. Also, kind of one of the catalysts for that modern era is at the same time the Renaissance and the the Enlightenment period, which where we're moving out of the monarchies and into democracies. Does that make sense? <laughs> Those are some really big, broad brush strokes of history here. So there's three 
I'll, I'll go over it again. There's three periods of Western civilization. Antiquity, classical antiquity, medieval, and modern, right? And so, but we've been in the medieval period. This is the period of the church, really. And we've just finished up with early medieval. Now we're into high medieval. And it's called high because it's when European monarchies really hit their stride. And, but this is also when the church, I mean, so the European monarchies flourishing, lots of power, lots of population growth. There's not a lot of uh, invasion from outside forces. So like from 800 on, there wasn't really any, any more threat militarily from the outside. So there's all these, there's this conflu- confluence of all these um, elements that cause the European monarchies to just enter the season of flourishing. At the same time, what? The church is gaining from all this political and monetary power and influence, right? So as the European monarchies really flourish, so does the church. And the church, man, the church finds itself in, in the high Middle Ages at the top of the top of the most powerful nations in the world. In the Western world, I should say. Right? So, man, you have this church and it is preeminent in these societies. This is where Christendom comes from. This is where the term Christendom comes from. It is a Christian nation state where popes have more power than political leaders. And this is no coincidence that the Crusades happen during the High Middle Ages. Almost, they, they, they will coincide almost perfectly, right? Because there's money, there's power, there's, and there's the desire to conquer both in the nation, state, and the church. And so you have, during the high Middle Ages, all these crusades. There are, there are, diff- there are two different ki- kinds of basic crusades. There, there was the preeminent crusades, which were to take the Holy Land. I mean, the European nations just got it in their head that, hey, this is where Jesus was born and raised and walked, and we need to own these lands. These are our founding lands, right? Everything came from Jerusalem and the Middle East. They just got it in their heads. They needed to own Jerusalem. They needed to conquer and possess Jerusalem. So there are seven main Holy Land Crusades. And these are the most popular, the most well-known. But there were, that's one type. The other type were just crusades, more for political, religious reasons, where you had... the monarchies in the church deciding to go after heretical basically factions sometimes for political gain sometimes for um, religious reasons but so the, the main the main crusades were for the holy land or the holy land crusades there were some auxiliary crusades to put down some factious political elements but also when the church decided you were a heretic we've already talked about this if you were deemed a heretic and usually it was concentrated in a region. The church during the high Middle Ages decided to use its influence over governments to basically send military action to take out heretics. I mean, this is, this is dealing with heresy on a whole nother level. You're not just dealing with it in individuals and you're not just excommunicating or kicking bishops out. Now the church during the age of Christendom has all this power, ability, influence, and it's going, hey, let's just send the military over to this region and just kill everybody. That's how we defeat heresy. So it's like there's been this progression through the patristic period into the high Middle Ages, 
and the the into the, into sparking the crusades to just ramp up continually this idea of right orthodoxy and if it's and if you don't have the right orthodoxy there are consequences and the consequences continue to build as the church gains power does that make sense now that's what we're going to talk about today christendom <clears throat> i think the full culmination of everything we're talking about as it gets expressed through the high middle ages is the crusades the crusades are the full culmination of this idea of the church being in bed with the state and actually being more powerful than the state and it's interesting every single crusade except the last was issued by edict of the pope the popes fuel the idea that political leaders need to rally troops and go and take the holy land because God wills it. <laughs> That's a line actually from a movie. There was a movie by um, Scott. His last name's Scott. I can't think of as a director. Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott did a movie called The Kingdom of Heaven. If you have not seen it, I recommend. It's, a, it's not only a beautiful depiction of that, of the high middle ages and the fervor of the crusades, but it, it really depicts this individual who's truly on a quest to find peace with God. And so it really contrasts this the character of this one individual and the character of, of the, the the character of the craze of the Crusades. <laughs> That's an alliteration right there. I think it's very it, it takes a very intimate approach too. I think it really plays off of the moral the moral bandwagon of the time to conquer in the name of Christ and this one individual who takes a different path, which is more humble, and doesn't want to to just conquer people in the name of Christ. And it's a secular film, but I think it really plays with some good themes that were prevalent in the period. And it interplays what we're talking about, too, in these discussions, which is, what is the character of Christ, and how is he, um, what, and how did he desire the church to exist? And then how does it get expressed as it grows and grows and grows in Byzantium as the Eastern Orthodox Church and the European monarchies as the Roman Catholic Church? I mean, it's just... It's mind-boggling to see where Christianity started, what Christ taught, and how it gets translated as it becomes the dominant power over these geopolitical powers that it's in bed with and vice versa. Right? Crazy. So, um, uh, of course, I'm in the woods. It's barely light, and I have some things written down. I'm going to try to just give some overviews of the seven crusades. Um... As I've already said, every crusade but the last was by edict of a pope. The popes got it in their head that, you know, not only did they have just have the ability, but they thought that um, Europe should go and conquer the Holy Land. Now, there were some problems just, just geographically. So, from Europe over to... I mean, their main goal was Jerusalem, but there was a lot in between, right? From Europe to Jerusalem was a long stretch. And this is the medieval period, right? They have ships. But I'm not sure if ships were... I don't think ships were used all that much. Mostly they traveled by land. But you had to move military stuff, right? Uh, Horses. Ships weren't always the most effective. So land routes were the most effective. But the land route to the Middle East and Jerusalem from European nation states was was not great and you had to pass through Byzantium and Constantinople and guess what's guess what's happened right before all these crusades begin 
is the Great Schism, right? And now the Greek church and the Latin church are not on good terms. Um, I'm actually in a place where I can see. Let me jump my notes. I should be sitting at a table here. I'm trying to walk. I don't usually use paper notes, but let me see. Uh, okay. The Crusades run from 1095 to 1291, basically. You know, they get, they get going with the First Crusade when Pope Urban II at the Council of Clermont calls for the taking of the Holy Land, right? That's 1095. That's the first. This is where it begins. Um, and it wraps up in 1291, basically, when uh, there were four provinces created. They're called Crusader States. There were four provinces created in the Middle East. And in 1291, they finally all fall. Like, like it's not been going well towards the end anyway. I don't think the Crusades ever went well, and we'll, we'll get into that. But like, by the end, they just fall apart, and they can't withstand the Muslim world, which is just beginning to organize and get more and more powerful, especially under Sal- Saladin. But so, you know, just like the Crusades just fizzle out, and, and it was just it was a monumental task to begin with. And here was the first problem, right? In the First Crusade, the First Crusade was actually called the People's Crusade. The Pope, this is just almost sad to me, because the Pope issues this edict and says, we need to take the Holy Land. And the first crusade is this, the poor peasants who go, they march, they're led by a French priest called Peter the Hermit. He's just like, yeah, let's go do this. Like, God's with us. I mean, it's just, these aren't soldiers. This is not a military leader. A, a, a French priest He's called Peter the Hermit. Let me just tell you what a hermit is. It's a guy who lives alone in the woods and just wants to seek God. And he just gets it, I don't know, where he got the idea. But this guy's not a military leader. He's not even a leader. He's a guy who likes to be by himself. And he tries to lead a crusade and he leads a bunch of peasants. And it doesn't go well. They end up going into, they pass through Germany. They kind of stir up the Germans. Their first action is to massacre Jews, which wasn't even the goal. But they just encounter, they pass through some Jewish cities, and they're so, they have so much fervor for just conquering the world for Christ, they kill a bunch of Jews, because well, the Jews killed Christ, right? So it's like already, the very first action of the very first crusade, which is just a bunch of peasants, is, it, it doesn't, what, what's going on? What, you just killed a bunch of Jews. That's the first action. That just tells you the spirit that these crusades were delved, or were born out of. Right, but it ends up, you know, they don't get far. Uh, they end up, then they end up getting massacred themselves as they get into, you know, enemy territory, Muslim territory, basically. They were killed at the Battle of Shavat by Muslim Turks. They just, they, they didn't, they weren't trained to fight. They thought God would be with them. Well, mm, guess he wasn't. <laughs> so, but then during that, that first crusade also included what was called the Princess Crusade. Now this is the only crusade. Yeah, these were these were the only crusades that weren't led by kings. So by you, by the time you get to the second crusade, every crusade after is is kings going and leading armies. Because then I don't know, it just really got into the culture. It's like, yeah, we got to do this, and the kings were like, well, we're the leaders, and the popes were like, yeah, you're the leaders. So the second part of the first crusade was the princes' crusade, and they go in. They actually are pretty successful. They take. Uh, there's there's like a there's just a wide band of countries along the border of uh, what is it the Red Sea I don't, can't, I don't remember what sea that is Adriatic maybe but I can look it up but you can look it up 
Anyway, they take all these, they're called crusader states. They take uh, Nicaea in 1097, Antioch in 1097, and they take Jerusalem in 1099. So for four years, they come in, they take Jerusalem. This is the first crusade. They establish these crusader states. But here's the thing. Like, they went in with, with pretty good military might. And most crusades had a good military. But what happened was when they took the lands, they were strong far out and away from their main bases, right, in Europe. They would take these lands, rally the troops, they got them, and then most of the troops would go home. And there would be left these, you know, this uh, minimal fighting force. And they're surrounded by, on one end is the Byzantium Empire, which is not in great favor. They're not in great favor with. And then they're surrounded by, besides that, by a bunch of Muslims who they took these lands from. And so it's never, it was never a really stable um, the Crusader states were never really stable. There was great fervor to take them, not great fervor to keep them. And that's what we see. And so throughout the Crusades, most of the Crusades were rallied around the theme of, well, we got these Crusader states and now they're falling. They're under attack because there's just, we just, it's hard to maintain them. It wasn't hard to take them always, but it was hard to maintain them. And it was always like, well, we got to go and take them again. We got to go and defend them again. So all these crusades are really like, we should possess the Holy Land because we're Christian and that's where Christ was born. And we're a conquering religious political entity now. So we should take the Holy Land and now all, and, and, but it's hard to keep. And so this back and forth. So 1095 to 1291, that's almost 200 years where it's just this really just pouring, my opinion, pouring all this energy effort focused down a hole. That hole is Jerusalem. And I don't mean that like literally like Jerusalem isn't a great place. I mean that this effort to try and take and keep Jerusalem just wastes 200 years of lives, resources, focus, and attention. All because popes thought Christian nations should own the Holy Land. This is the height of Christendom. This is the, the fullest, I think, fullest culmination of the ideas that have been going on for the last thousand years, roughly. Well, starting with the fourth century, that's not quite a thousand, but almost the last, well, last 800 years. The full culmination is the Crusades. The church gets, finally, it gets to be on top of the top of the most powerful geopolitical nations in the world. And what does it do with all that power? Conquer. It wants to go and conquer. In the First Crusade, you have the Prince, Princess Crusade. They go into, they have to pass through. Every time you've got to pass through Byzantium. They come in, this big army, really well-formed army, comes into Byzantium. And the, the Constantinople and Byzantium, they're a little freaked out. Why? Because the Great Schism has just happened. The Great Schism has just happened, um, like, not even 50 years prior. So there's this huge Roman Catholic European uh, army in their land going, hey guys, you want to go take the Holy Land with us? And they're like, uh, well, not really, but we don't want to piss you guys off because you're a big force. And so the, the, the Greeks sent an army in the First Crusade with the Crusaders, the Latin Crusaders, but they don't really want to fight. And so they don't end up really doing much. They end up kind of not showing up. They muster, they kind of march out, they don't show up. And so after the First Crusade, the already high tension and high strain between the Greek and Latin churches just really is ruined completely now because the Latin 
you know, the European monarchies and the Latin Church now f- views the views the Greek Orthodox, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church. There actually is a Greek Orthodox Church too, but they view the Greek culture. Byzantium, Constantinople as traitors even more now. And so you'll find in one of the Crusades, they end up sacking Constantinople, right? Which is just crazy. One Christ- the two, of course, there's this tension anyway, right? They've already both had the stalemate with the Great Schism. There's this tension. And so it's not surprising that eventually the Latin church, basically, as a part of trying to keep, take and keep the Holy Land, ends up sacking and killing another Christian nation, right? It's just, it's crazy. Like, is this the fullest expression of what the church was meant to be? <sighs> Absolutely not. But this is where the church is. And I know, it's, I'm not trying to take a high, the high moral ground or sit on a high moral horse and condemn, but we're just talking about the fervor of the times. I mean, this was an a, a atmosphere of Im- imperialism. And so we have to understand the times. And the, the desire to conquer was just there, and it got effervesced and expressed through these things. But we're talking about the church, founded by a guy, who Jesus, whose protest against imperial power was to let himself be crucified. So we're going to get into the last half a little bit about the difference between Christendom and the kingdom of God. So I'm, I'm trying to just go through a little bit more history of the uh, Crusades. If I can, I need three hands to do this, but Second Crusade, Pope Eugene III issues a papal bull. The Second Crusade just failed, basically. They just failed. <laughs> they were responding to the fall of Edessa. There were three or four, as I told, told you, there were four Crusader states. One was the county of Edessa. One was the principality of Antioch. One was the county of Tripoli. One was the kingdom of Jerusalem. Four crusader states. And so you have, again, all the other crusades are about, we establish these crusader states and we got to keep them. And they keep getting overrun, t- overtaken. Second crusade responded to the fall of Edessa, but they just didn't succeed. Um, and, the fall, and the kingdom of Jerusalem falls during this period as well. The second crusade was 1145. Third crusade is 1188. Um, Jerusalem has fallen. Third crusade is like, hey, Pope Gregory the... Uh, Roman numerals here. Pope Gregory the Eighth, again, he issues a papal bull and says, "Hey, we need to go back and take Jerusalem back. It's the Holy Land. We were supposed to own that." At this time, the Muslim East had united under this great Muslim leader called Saladin. I mentioned him already. Now, he really leads the Muslim world into greater thriving and, and organization, and he's the one that's able to take Jerusalem back from the Crusaders. Um. You might know the Third Crusade. One of the uh, one of the uh, European kings was Richard the Lionheart. You've probably heard of him. He went with Philip II of France and the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. They all went in. They um, they they had a lot of success. They came very close to Jerusalem and couldn't take it. So they actually just were able to, you know, because they still had their they had some success. They brokered a peace treaty with Saladin. And the, the, the truce was, it was called the Treaty of Jaffa. They were like, hey, okay, so you know, we're, you know we can come here and kick butt, but you're powerful too. So what we really would just like is can Christian pilgrims come to the Holy Land? And Solomon's like, Solomon was actually a wise political leader. And he's like, yeah, we'll do that because I don't really want to continue to fight this battle anyway. So that happens. Uh, Fourth Crusade, 
Oh yeah, Fourth Crusade. Um, during the Fourth Crusade, this is when Byzantium is sacked by the Crusaders, right? So King Philip joins the Crusade. There was other people, other guys. Lots of stuff happened. There were guys, you know, swords and stuff, <laughs> cannons. Right? But King Philip decides, as a part of the Crusades to the Holy Land, uh, through family ties, he's got a, a a family member who is like the brother of the Greek emperor, the emperor of Byzantium, and he wants to put his the he wants to put the brother in, and so he actually takes out the emperor of Constantinople as a part of the crusade, puts his brother-in-law or whatever the the brother of the emperor in power and the greeks eventually kill that emperor because they don't want a latin you know ties with the latin church or europe it's their that's their own country so they they kill that guy but as a result then the crusaders sat constantinople they pillage the churches they kill a bunch of greek christians you got Latin Christians killing Greek Christians as a part of the Fourth Crusade. That was kind of the main thing that happened. <clears throat> Fifth Crusade um, really wasn't successful either. Either, sorry. Um, Sixth Crusade. Let's see. I'm going through my notes. They actually, the Sixth Crusade was uh, instigated by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. This guy was kind of interesting because he was actually sympathetic to Muslim culture. And so he takes a big army down there and he's like, you know, we could kick your butt. However, I like you guys. Let's just, let, he used his fighting force to negotiate a peace treaty. Um, which again, just, just effectively split control of Jerusalem between the Muslims and the Christians. You know, I thought that was pretty cool. The one guy who actually tried to just establish peace instead of just go kill everybody. <laughs> um, he actually had some sympathies and some interest in Muslim culture, right? Seventh Crusade, uh, King Louis, this was, I thought this was kind of funny. King Louis the Ninth, yeah, King Louis the Ninth of France, like this guy did not want to go on a crusade and the Pope kept threatening to excommunicate him. And finally he's like, oh my gosh, all right. Get off my back, dude, <laughs> Mr. Pope. I'll go. Just leave me alone. So he goes, and he's not that successful, but he's able to consolidate the remaining crusader states. That's in 1249. Sorry, I missed some dates there. Um, so 12, we're getting 1249, the last, you know, the last crusader states fall by 1291. So you have the county of Tripoli in 1289 falls. The last remaining city, Acre, in the kingdom of Jerusalem falls in 1291. And then it's just like, that's it. They're just like 200 years we've tried to conquer and maintain these crusader states. And it's just not, it just doesn't work. Muslim, the Muslim, um, you know, empires, caliphs, whatever you, you want to call them, they were growing more powerful. And, and you, they was just too far afield from European states and, and Europe. You know, it would have been, this is just something that's, I, I'm not a political leader, but it would have been smart for European, the European states to, to partner with Byzantium. Because that was the biggest problem. Byzantium was the closest to these lands. And yeah, granted, I guess uh, Byzantium and Constantinople wasn't that interested in taking the Holy Land, right? They, maybe they were more peaceable. But there was just this urge to empire to conquer in the name of Jesus. 
to pick up the sword, to kill. And look, Christians and Jews got in on the bloodbath or were recipients of the bloodbath. And that's just, that's crazy. As I said, there were other crusades. Um, One was against the, in northern Germany, against the winds. They were pagans. And like, again, the church wanted to take out pagans and heretics. So all, all in the mix of these crusades and the fervor of, yeah, let's go conquer the world for Christ through military force was like, oh, and there's some pagans over there and some heretics over here, and let's just take those out too. And there's also some Christians over here who are not Latin. And so they don't, they're, they're, orthodoxy ain't quite right so let's take them out too and of course Jew, we know Jews are just bad people because they killed Jesus so let's take them out too and it's like killing in the name of Jesus hey this is the 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 culmination I, I mean I know this sounds harsh but the culmination of the spirit of the age of all that's been going on through the patristic period up into high, the high middle ages and the crusades is like conquer for Christ well how did Christ conquer uh, not by the sword He didn't try to overtake the Roman Empire or to set up a church that could be in control of the Roman Empire. And that's how he conquered. Actually, that's how the Jews thought he would conquer. They thought he would set up a nation state. They they couldn't accept Jesus because he didn't come as a military leader. But he didn't come as a military leader on, uh, on purpose. There was a reason Jesus didn't come and conquer militarily to take over the world with the kingdom of God. Because that's not the nature of the kingdom of God. And that's what we've been talking about. We just talked about what? In the last episode, the nature of the kingdom of Satan is to kill, steal, and destroy. To take up the sword. To just annihilate swaths of people, including your own kind, even if they're Christian, but they don't believe like you, and especially if they're Jewish, and especially if they're Muslim, even though they all stem from the same father abraham right these are the the three monotheistic religions are just you know with with some exceptions they're just against you know they they can't get along crazy um i want to jump to three parables jesus tells about the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god now, this is what we're contrasting here or contrasting at least that's what I'm doing in this podcast. Or Christentum, the idea of a geopolitical nation state, which is divinely instigated. That's what that's what you know, a Christian state. No, oh, I'm trying to get a drink. <laughs> Just, I accidentally closed by the thing instead of opening. We're contrasting Christendom with the kingdom of God. We're contrasting Christians in control of the two most powerful nations with Christ and how he tried to establish the kingdom of God not Christendom I don't see anything anywhere in the gospels that puts the impetus towards this kind of action or this way of Christianity exerting itself into the world Jesus tells three parables about the kingdom of God. The first one is the parable of the sower and the seeds. Now, I'm not going to actually read that parable. What I'm going to do is read Jesus' explanation of the parable. I'm going to back up a little before that. He says, he's told this parable of the sowers to a large crowd, and now he's withdrawn with his 12 disciples. And they're asking him about, 
the parables, about this, the parables he's, he's told. And he, this is uh, Mark 4, chapter 4, verse 11. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside, everything comes in parables. So they're asking him about the parables. But he's like, I've, I'm giving you the mystery of the kingdom of God. So the, these parables, in these parables, Jesus is laying out the mystery of the kingdom of God. That's, I think that's interesting. Mystery means there's a lot you don't get about it. You've got to pay attention. It's not something that comes easily. Understanding the kingdom of God isn't a surface-level kind of perception. And as we talked about in some earlier, you know, um, I can't remember what this orthodoxy, maybe the episode on orthodoxy, how the spirit is integral, right? Because there's a mystery, and who has known the mind of God is so as to teach him. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we have the mind of Christ, right? There's this emphasis that Paul puts on the Holy Spirit being the only way we can delve into the mysteries of God. And Jesus to the disciples here in Mark 4 is saying, I've given, I've given you the ability to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God. But note that it's a mystery. It's something we cannot delve into and perceive on our own. And I think that the period of the high Middle Ages in Christendom is a blatant misunderstanding of the kingdom of God and what Jesus desired it to be in the character of the kingdom of God, which is epitomized by the character of God. Right? What we see in Christendom is what epitomizes the character of a different kingdom, a different spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Ain't no way and no how that God, that Jesus, put forth a model of conquering the world for him by the sword, by means of the sword. Jesus rejects Satan's offer to be in charge of the kingdoms of the earth. And now, but Christians now get in charge of the kingdoms of the earth. And look what they do with that power. They do not, from my humble perspective, they do not go forth in the power of the kingdom of God with the power of the kingdom of God. Because the power of the kingdom of God is humble. It is God on a cross. That is the ultimate image of how God chooses to relate to the world, the cross. What looks weak to us, what is humble, what is meek, what is God saying, I would rather die than oppress you. I'm dying for you. I'm, I'm the supreme king of the universe. And I'm going to let these kingdoms kill me so that I can show you my character, my nature. Everything is poured into this one moment, Jesus on the cross, that says, this is God. God will, would rather suffer for you than cause you to suffer. Christendom does the opposite. It brings suffering all over the world for the means of political power and prominence and control. Crazy. So, <laughs> back to the verse. Okay, so now he goes into explaining the parable. And that, by the way, these three parables are all about seeds. We'll get into that. Jesus said, verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word. And in a similar way, the ones on the rocky soil, when they hear the word, immediately immediately receive it. And yet they have no firm root. It's only temporary. When affliction and persecution comes, because of the word, they fall away. And others are... 
the ones sown with seeds among the thorns. The thorns are the ones who've heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things enters and chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. And then lastly, those are the ones sown with seed on good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times as much. Well, that second to last one where there's thorns, deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things comes in and chokes out the word. Remember, Jesus is the word. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to pass on truth. Right? But what's been going on during the patristic period is the Holy Spirit and the central role of the Holy Spirit is being shoved to the side. And now you have all these these bishops creating the Nicene Creed and this this attempt to craft universal orthodoxy. And then once you have that, and then once you have the power of empire, and you can enforce universal orthodoxy, now you just have this, and now you have money coming in and power, and the church just, what? It's a hotbed of thorns. The word gets choked out. The word represents not just the words of God, but look, the word is a double-edged sword, sharp, piercing, Dividing between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. The word is living and active. That's what the scripture says. I don't have that reference looked up. I think it's Hebrews. Mm, I don't know. The word is living and active. It pierces us. It penetrates. It digs in deep. It shows us what, what's inside us that isn't good. And it, it comes to transform us. The Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, through the piercing word, which is the spirit convicting us, leading, guiding us. It's orthosiasi. Spirit speaking to us guides us towards repentance and change when the thorns, which are a desire for money, power, control, when the thorns choke out our ability to hear God and have an intimate relationship with God, what happens? The desire for wealth, power, money, even in the name of Christ, become preeminent. And this is exactly what we see in the high Middle Ages and the birth of Christendom. This is not an expression of the Holy Spirit leading these people to kill and conquer. I mentioned the Kingdom of Heaven, that movie. I forgot that. The point I was making was there's this line where there's this moment where they go out to battle. The the Crusaders leave Jerusalem. They've they've captured Jerusalem. They control Jerusalem. They go out to engage this Muslim force. And the the main character, um, I guess the name starts with a B, Balak or... I can't remember his name. But he's like, dude, guys, this is dumb. You're going out into a desert. There's no water. There's no resources. Your supply lines are cut off. And they're like, no, God is with us. And the, the line is, God wills it. Like the priests and the leaders are like, God wills it. And if God wills it, then we'll, we'll succeed. And they go out and this is a fictitious. I think some of these events are fictitious, but based on true, you know, based on true events in a, in a way, loosely based. <clears throat> they go out, they get slaughtered. God wills it. Well, because they thought because God willed it, they, they said God willed it. And they thought, if God wills it, we'll succeed. Well, did political powers just use God to control people to get them to do what they wanted? Did someone really think they heard from God? But the point is, they didn't hear from God. That line in the movie was, God wills it, but if God wills it and you, and you fail, did God will you to fail? No. But the point is, they lost the, when you lose the ability to hear God, you will do all kinds of things in the name of God because you're just operating out of your own mind. That's, ortho, that's orthodoxy, right thinking. <clears throat> you got your thinking right. 
well, I think this and I think that. You can think all kinds of things. You can think whatever you want about God and think you should do whatever you want for God. But if God's not directing you, that's it's not the same thing. And so this first parable about the sower and the seed, Jesus talks about good soil and a seed and things taking root. And like, let's go to this, the next parable. I want to, we'll get into why Jesus uses this, a seed and why that's so important when it comes to the kingdom of God. Here's the second parable. It's called the parable of the seed. The first was the parable of the sower. This is the parable of the seed. The kingdom of God is like a man... Sorry, this is Mark 4, starting with verse 26. And he was saying, Jesus was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up daily, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The seed produces crops by itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Now when the crop permits, he immediately puts the sickle, puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This is pretty cool. So the first parable of the, of the sower is like, it's not just enough to have the seed. The seed is the word. You could say to have the Holy Spirit. It's not enough just to have the Holy Spirit. But you have to cultivate an inner life that's receptive to the Holy Spirit. You have to learn how to walk and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in Galatians. You've got to have the right internal space. You've got to cultivate the right internal space. If there's weeds, if there's thorns, if there's hard soil, it's got to be dug up. It's got to be plowed up. You know, dig up the fallow ground. That's another verse. Your hearts are hard. You can't, hard hearts can't receive the word. You have to be sensitive to the Spirit to hear the Spirit. <clears throat> and then in the second one, he says, seeds of God's word get planted in you, but you really don't know how it works. All you can do is try to make yourself as receptive as you can to God. And God, there's a mystery. Again, he's, Jesus ta- starts this whole section by to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. There's a mystery. How does the word of God grow in us? There's a mystery. But we submit to the mystery and we, we work our whole lives to participate with God as he plows up all the soil and digs out the roots and the weeds and it's a constant effort. Third parable, the parable of the mustard seed. <clears throat> and he was saying, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, with the result that the birds of the sky can nest under its shade. It's a small seed. Like, it doesn't look like much. The kingdom of heaven, the truth of God, the word of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, man, it does not look like, it's not powerful in, the, in the, the ways we see power. It looks like powerlessness. It looks like Jesus on a cross being crucified by an empire for the sake of geopolitical and religious power. You gotta, you gotta understand, the, the Jewish religion uh, colluded with Roman Empire to kill Jesus. They killed God over religious political power. That, but Jesus' action was done in obedience to God. He had an intimate relationship with God. It looked like the, the small seed. It can't do nothing. It's so tiny. It looks so insignificant. The mystery of the kingdom of God is that it doesn't look powerful. It looks foolish. That's what we talked about when we read the passage on First and Second Corinthians. The, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. It's, it doesn't look strong. It doesn't look like it could take over the world. 
How is that possible? That Jesus, this guy who died on a cross, who offers us the gift of the Holy Spirit, how is it possible that that could transform the world? Wouldn't it be better if we got in charge of nation states and used military power to take over the world? Uh, well, if you're in concert with the kingdom of darkness and the way that that kingdom works, that's what makes sense to that kingdom is power and might and control and you force and you by sword and by might you take over the world for Jesus. That ain't the mustard seed. And it's cool when the mustard seed, so it doesn't look like much, but it grows up to be the largest of the garden plants. And it says when it's full grown, it becomes a place where birds can nest. It becomes a shelter. It becomes a place where people can come and find shelter, safety. What? The world is full of conflict, aggression, evil, intent, greed, people seeking their own over, over, the, you know, over the good of others. That's the kingdom of Satan is I get mine and if I have to shove people down to get it or climb over people, I will do it. That's the kingdom of Satan is me first, my nation first, my religion first, and I'm going to put down all you if you're a heretic or if you're not, you're not part of my religion. That's Christendom. That's the high middle ages. Man, but Jesus lays out such a different perspective in these three parables about seeds. What, what a seed, what, I mean, think about a seed. Can you weaponize a seed? We've got a lot of, uh, you know, in today's modern age, we've got a lot of bioengineering of things. You know, some seeds are, are bioengineered, but they're not bioengineered to kill people. You can't weaponize a seed. A seed is small. It, it's, it's a potentiality, right? Think about a huge oak tree. I mean, I'm in the middle of the woods. Trees towering over me 30 feet. They started as something I could hold in the palm of my hand. Tiny. I could go pick a seed off of that tree right now. Acorn, walnut, those helicopter seeds, small, tiny, insignificant. Could Like, you hold it in your hand, you could crush it. Give it to a squirrel, he'll eat it. <laughs> it's like, it's nothing. It looks like nothing. It looks like it's nothing. The kingdom of God looks like nothing in our hands because it doesn't look like anything powerful enough to take over the world. Because we're, we're so adept and indoctrinated into a system where power is might makes right. The guy with the sword makes the rules. That's the kingdom, the power of Satan. God's kingdom looks like a seed. And guess what? There's a lot of conditions that have to come together to make that seed grow. But when it grows, it takes time. It's slow. But it grows slowly over time and grows into something huge and strong and big. And that's how it works. But it's planted in human hearts. It's not planted in governments. It's not planted in cultures. It's not planted in philosophies. It's not through rational thinking and through good orthodoxy. It's the Holy Spirit planted in you who is the Word, which is the seed that begins to grow slowly, 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 continues to grow. It's slow. It's imperceivable. No one can really see how God's transforming you, but the fruits reveal, as Paul says also in Galatians. Man, it's a slow game, and it's an interior work. But when people's hearts are changed by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform, it does transform cultures and nations and societies. But when we thwart, circumvent, or completely throw out the seed, the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit... We lose everything about the kingdom of God. This is the mystery of the kingdom of God. It looks like nothing, 
but it could take over the whole world if we let it take over us, each one individually. It's a seed. It's not a sword. It's a seed. Well, during the high Middle Ages, the full culmination of everything Christianity has been moving towards is not a seed, but a sword. The sword becomes the instrument of the power of Christendom to conquer and kill and eliminate or force conversion. For There were forced conversions during the Crusades too. You convert or die. Convert or die. The sword, not the seed, became preeminent in the Christianity of the High Middle Ages, which led to Christendom, the idea of a Christian nation-state. But what was the full result? Blood, violence, aggression, greed, power. Not the kingdom of God. That's not the character. Those aren't the characteristics of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a seed. It's tiny. It doesn't look like anything. You might just walk by it on the ground and not even notice it. A military marching across the earth. You take notice of that. And if, if a Christian army comes and says, we're in control and you're going to do what we want and we've got the right orthodoxy and you better shape up or we're going to ship you out, you're going to be excommunicated, you're going to be damned for eternity in hell, God's on our side. What are you going to do? Oh yeah, sure. You're going to die or you're going to submit, but have you really con- do you really convert people by the sword? What did Jesus come to do? He came to change human hearts, to transform individual lives into the character of God, to inculcate us into a process that would eventually reap the result of a tiny seed growing inside us to become something large, powerful, the power to change the human heart. When human hearts are changed and transformed to be holy like God is holy, we will live in a way towards our neighbors, towards our world, in our world that causes thriving, where we don't need militaries. We don't need the sword. When we have the seed, we don't need the sword. Remember the Old Testament passage? There's, a, there's this, this imagery about the time of peace, about the kind of peace God wants to instigate. And it talks about beating swords into plowshares. There's, there's actually this double. There's this metaphor of ble- beating plowshares into swords which isn't good. And then it's like, but hey, like you've, you've taken this God thing, even in the Old Testament, and you've tried to turn it into a sword. You've taken plow, share. You know what a plow share is? It tills up the ground so you can plant seeds. And this metaphor in the Old Testament even, God's like, man, you've turned my truth, which is like a plow to plow up the ground so I can plant seeds. You've turned that into a sword. Power, military power, kings. Remember we talked about Jews wanted a king. They rejected God as their king. They turned their plowshares into swords. But there's this cool imagery, I think it's in the Psalms, where it's like, but hey, God wants to come and instigate this time of peace through Christ where you'll turn those swords back into plowshares. It is something that, that operates the way I want. I want. I want you to come in, like the word, the spirit, the seed comes in and the work that you need to do is to let God dig up the soil, constantly digging out the roots, pulling out the thorns, planting the seed. There's a mystery How does it grow? There's a mystery. How does the Holy Spirit work? There's a mystery. How do we learn to hear God? It's a mystery, but it doesn't come through the sword. It's a seed. We need to turn the sword back into a plowshare. We need to get back in touch with the Holy Spirit. 
That's the kingdom of God. All this leading up, the Edict of Milan, all the seven ecumenical councils of the patristic period, and now high middle ages, Christendom gets birthed into the world. And what's the full result? It's the Crusades. And what do the Crusades accomplish? They kill a bunch of people. They create crusader states. Those states fail. 200 years spent because God willed it. Or maybe the God of this world willed it through the political, geopolitical, religious powers of the day. Through a Christendom that was not really like the kingdom of God at all. 800 years, the full culmination through the early Middle Ages to the high Middle Ages. The full culmination of this whole movement of the empire church is the Crusades, is killing people in the name of Jesus. Turning away from the seed and turning to the sword. There's a lesson, but I don't think we've got it even today because what we live in, we think there are Christian nations and we think the law should reflect Christian values and should enforce Christian values. And today we still think that government should enforce and put forth Christian values. We don't understand the nature of a seed and the mystery of the kingdom. We still think by the sword, by the rule of law, and by the force of government, we should instigate Christian values. You cannot transform people's hearts through oppressive, abusive, controlling means. That is the kingdom of Satan. There is a beast that has taken over and run rampant in the church and convoluted and changed it and caused it to pick up the sword of empire. And we have yet to get that darn sword out of the church. We've yet to kick the beast out. But God still calls us out of her. Come out of her, my people. Come and drink. Put down the sword. Pick up the seed. Right? You got to get the seed in you first, and then you become sowers of the seed. And then you watch the seeds grow, and they become a shelter, a place, a haven, right? Away from all this crazy conflict and aggression and self-centeredness to the way and character and call of Christ. To deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. To be as he is, to be as he was in the world. As he was in the world, so we are. Carrying a cross, suffering. Our desire, as Jesus' desire, is to rather suffer at the hands of others than cause them to suffer at our hands. We would rather suffer in order to what? To plant the seeds of the gospel, which is God loves you. God is calling you. God wants to transform your heart, your life, into thriving. And it's a gentle process. It's a kind process full of love. It's embracing. It's affirming. It's kind. It's tender. It calls us into a different way of living altogether, out of the world. And the kingdom which dominates the world and the political powers of the world. We've got to separate from this idea that Christianity should control nation-states. We see, we see what happens when it has the ultimate control in the high Middle Ages. It's killing people in the name of Jesus, even other Christians. Of course, Jews, of course, Muslims. The sword becomes preeminent and the seed gets thrown away. The seed is orthosiasi, 
It's the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. We need again today a call back to God, to intimacy with God, to contemplation. We need the seed, not the sword. The sword is not the means and the power and the might and the method by which God instigates the kingdom of heaven. It's the seed. The seed is a mystery. It's potentiality. It's the potentiality of the Holy Spirit inside us to grow, slowly to grow over time, to dig up the weeds, to dig up the thorns, to dig out the rocks, to dig up the fallow ground, to turn us, to change us into people that emanate the character of God, the loving, tender, kind, joyful nature of God. A God who would rather die himself at the hands of empire than to wield the power of empire over people to force them into the kingdom. Remember I said, Jesus actually said, from the time of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God is, um, is taken over by violent men and violent means. I, I'm not quite getting the verbiage, but Jesus said, there's people who will think that the kingdom of God should be advanced through violence, through the sword. But that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what? It's a mystery. It's a seed. It's a sower. It's a mustard seed. It's small. You, you're going to miss it. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, who is the seed planted in you? If you don't let that seed grow, if you don't really learn to hear the Holy Spirit, if you put orthodoxy first, or orthopraxy, or even orthosynesthema, if you put those first... Well, you're just relying on your own strength, the flesh, to try and work it out. You're working out your own thoughts, your own truth, through your own means. When we're disconnected from the Spirit, we don't get or perceive the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's a mystery because we don't know how it works. We only know that as the Spirit is allowed to get planted in us and grow, it begins to happen. There's no formula. It's a mystery. It's a relationship with God that we grow into where God is able to lead us the word planted in us. And as we listen to God, as we follow and become obedient to that word spoken to us in every moment through the vibrant, intimate presence of the Holy Spirit, we grow to be like God and we become a force for God, advancing the kingdom of God in the world. There's no doubt in my mind the differences between Christendom and the high Middle Ages and the kingdom of God that Jesus put forth are stark and diametrically opposed. And that's what happens when you blend Christianity with political empire. Whew, that's a lot to think about as we continue with our discussion on being church. And what the church is truly meant to be and what's the center of the church and how it's been transformed, changed, manipulated, and controlled throughout the centuries and through the cultures and the times and the governments that it has been a part of. So today we discussed Christendom. And next week we'll continue the discussion. I right, love you guys. Thanks for paying attention. This has been, has been a Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, J. Randall Ori. You can catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com or Google J. Randall Ori. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.